Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. Fifty years ago this month, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Fair Housing Act into law. Coming just days after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil unrest that followed, this landmark law made race-based housing discrimination illegal. It banned redlining, restrictive covenants, and other practices that prevented black families from buying homes and building wealth across the U.S. Now with this bill, the voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all, all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. That, at least, was the goal of the Fair Housing Act. This week, we take a closer look at the legacy of this law and how far we've really come in the last 50 years. The Fair Housing Act represented a radical shift in public policy. Before 1968, housing discrimination on the basis of race was completely legal and even encouraged by federal, state, and local laws dating back to the New Deal. You're talking about the fact that you could actually draw lines around where blacks could live. That's Elena McCargo, Vice President for Housing Finance Policy at the Urban Institute. You could make a decision not to finance a home or not to make housing available to black families because they were black and neighborhoods were um, segregated and and specifically divided and it was perfectly legal to do that. Uh, you know, federal government programs were designed to help white families in financing and developing and moving to neighborhoods of their own um, away from black families. And so there was real intentional policy and intentional activities that were taking place that, that really exacerbated that, and it was all legal. And those policies had impacts. In 1968, the black home ownership rate was around 42%, far below the white home ownership rate of 66%. Over the next three decades after the Fair Housing Act, the black home ownership rate rose modestly, peaking at almost 50% in 2004. So while nothing was immediate, uh, the home ownership rate did start to see small gains uh, over the next decades. And then larger gains came in, in the early 2000s. You know, in the 2000s, the early 2000s, there were uh, federal orders and presidential uh, priorities that were set around increasing the homeownership rate for minorities in America. Uh, it started, you know, from the from the Clinton administration through to uh, George W. Bush's administration. There were specific homeownership goals that were set, and a lot of work was done to advance homeownership rates in the minority community. So very focused efforts in, the, in that space. Yeah, we have a problem here in America because fewer than half of the Hispanics and half the African-Americans own the home. That's a home ownership gap. It's a gap that we've got to work together to close for the good of our country, for the sake of a more hopeful future. And um, through that time, we saw a rise in black and Hispanic homeownership rates all, you know, all the way through um, to about 2007. 
What did the Clinton administration and the Bush administration, second Bush administration, do that actually was successful? What were some of the policy or programs that they had in place? So some of the focal federal policies that were put in place um, really dealt with primarily access to credit, um, strengthening the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA's role, and what HUD was doing. Um, new subsidy programs were put into place. So there was a number of things, and I just I have to stress they were prioritized. Homeownership was on a presidential agenda. That's something we haven't really seen since the Bush era. It's been something that has not been discussed as much in campaigns and and, and campaigned on um, as widely as it was uh, during those during those periods. And um, I think that it was that focus and that intention that um, was put in place that really helped to drive things. At the same time, um, industry, uh, because of some of those drivers and um, some of the policies that were in place, um, you know, there were a lot of opportunists that entered. There was a lot of predatory lending practices that went into place. And unfortunately, a lot of that was targeted at minority communities, and those communities um, suffered greatly from the subprime mar- mortgage market um, rise and also the crash of, um, of that market and what, why we saw such a huge foreclosure and distressed um, situation for minority families during that period. Of course, this is the part we all remember. The collapse of the subprime mortgage market in 2007, the cascade of bank failures and bailouts, and the deep nationwide recession. Many Americans lost everything in the crisis, but research has shown that Black and Hispanic families were disproportionately affected. In 2006, Blacks and Hispanics were roughly twice as likely as whites to receive a subprime mortgage. And after the crash, they were 70% more likely to lose their homes to foreclosure. But the drop in homeownership was largest among black people. From 2000 to 2015, black homeownership fell by six percentage points compared with less than two percentage points for whites and Hispanics. The other thing I want to mention, too, is that the run up to to the crisis was also a period of steep home price increases. And so as home prices were going up, blacks were really buying at the height of the market. So that made the crash even more significant for black families, losing equity, finding themselves in negative equity positions, and losing their homes as a result of their inability to stabilize that. Today, the gap between black and white homeownership looks much the same as it did in the 1960s, 42% to 72%. In other words, all the gains made since the Fair Housing Act have been erased. And now in today's market where access to credit is much tighter, what does that mean for homeowners or potential homeowners who are looking to buy today? Yeah, it's it's a significant issue today, uh, and it is part of why the recovery for black families has been so slow. If you were, for example, part of the foreclosure population, the ability for you to regain or re-enter homeownership is very difficult, even though you may have regained your income and all your other, sort of all the other stability in your life. Right now, access to credit is really reserved for those with stable, medium to high incomes, and those with the highest or best credit scores, pristine credit. We've done some work studying access to credit issues, and we found that there are more than you know six million loans that have not been made since 2009. Uh, when you look at sort of what the credit characteristics were pre, well, well pre-crisis, and compare them to today. So those are loans that ostensibly should be made for people who 
could qualify or right. would have qualified in previous time. Right. Good risk, um, credit worthy income, you know, um, solid incomes, those families with those same credit characteristics in 2001 would have gotten a loan and have not because of how tight things have gotten since um, since that time. So credit scores were ostensibly developed to help take bias out of the system and making some of the decisions on who gets mortgages and who doesn't. Has that played out that way? So the credit scoring system, uh, it's actually one of the most concrete measures of that we have um, to look at sort of who gets a house and who doesn't get a house in in this country uh, and who gets credit and who doesn't get credit. And we can see that um, today that many housing programs that are available uh, are requiring far higher credit scores than they did in the past. That pristine credit requirement is a barrier for black families because historically black credit scores are lower. Blacks have had fewer decades to um, work on their credit or in, and even be on the credit spectrum. Um, millions of um, black and Hispanic families don't have credit scores at all, which means that they don't even have an opportunity to, um, to get into the um, mortgage market. And the the most important point I'll make is that credit scoring in and of itself is not the most important thing to determining someone's ability to repay on a mortgage loan. It is, there's just so many other compensating factors and they're really getting back to the core of underwriting based on um, a person's overall credit worthiness, not just a score that can have bias in it, um, but also income, debt, savings, looking at the the big picture of um, of a person's ability to, to repay a mortgage. There's also a lot of misinformation about what it takes to buy a home. A recent Urban Institute study found that 80% of consumers either don't know how much lenders require for a down payment or believe all lenders require a down payment above 5%. But many programs at the federal, state, and local level offer safe, low down payment mortgages and assistance to help people buy homes for significantly less than commercial rates. This knowledge gap discourages people from applying for mortgages even when they can afford them. And then there's the issue of wealth, whether a family has accumulated enough wealth over the generations to invest in a home. Here's Elena again. The wealth gap um, and the homeownership gap are, if you look at them together, they're incredibly connected. And, and um, the, the gap between white and black Americans has more than tripled the wealth gap um, over the last 50 years. Um, median net worth of white families is 10 times that of black families today. Um, and so, and segregation does persist in communities around the country, as do inequities around, you know, quality of education, income, and other things that come from or stem from that. So I just think it's important to talk about all of them um, holistically, because that's why this homeownership rate conversation is so important. You've done some really interesting work also on mapping the homeownership gap across the country and looking at different regional differences, um, especially for different groups. What have you found there that's been surprising? We looked at a map and thought, let's look at the top you know, 100 heaviest populated black communities around the country and see you know, what the black homeownership gap looks like. And what we found was that there is no place in the country that there is not a gap that um, black homeownership is significantly um, lower uh, in even primarily predominantly black communities. And so, you know, these disparities are not concentrated. They're happening all over the country. And, um, and, I, and, and it also kind of led us to understanding the reasons for them in different, in different parts of the country are very different and require 
a lot of local level focus from policymakers. So federal policy cannot solve all of those problems. Um, one other thing I'll just mention is local laws like zoning laws, deed restrictions uh, also play a role in where, where affordable housing you know, exists, um, what's available, et cetera. And that's something of a legacy pr- issue that I think we, you know, that's a really important thing at the local level that needs to be focused on. What role do you think discriminatory practices uh, have in terms of leading to this gap? So we're talking about, you know, unwinding decades of discriminatory practices that are built into the systems. And it's just really important to understand that that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen without strong and consistent enforcement of the law. So Fair Housing Act and the fair housing laws are still very, very relevant today and enforcement of those are critical for consumers. Equality in real estate sales and lending practices uh, across the board, uh, including all the things that go into underwriting, credit scoring, looking at income, et cetera. And uh, very focused policy um, and, and enforcement efforts to combat and expose bad actors and practices that are inherent and that continue you know, in, in, in pockets. Uh, that, that's real. It does happen. That's the world we're living in. Um, I think acknowledging that individual discriminatory practices and views do exist and focusing institutional policies for lenders and insurers and real estate agents and appraisers and servicers and anyone else who's involved in this to really ensure that there's monitoring and penalty associated with discriminatory practices is, is important, that that remains in focus for us for the next 50 years because we have not solved that problem. Uh, And finally, I'll just reiterate that intentional and aggressive policy action that works to reduce the homeownership gap and get black black families back on track for the next 50 years of homeownership and wealth uh, equality and growth is, is key. It's pivotal. What are some specific recommendations that you might offer up that the federal government or state government can take to start to address the this challenge? There are four things that I would recommend that um, that really kind of would hit home in terms of thinking about the future. First, elevate home ownership as a national priority again. I think that's a really important thing that's just lost. Um, w- the second thing I'd focus on is supply and just creating more affordable housing units for purchase and for rental uh, so that more people can enter home ownership. The third thing is fixing the issues and barriers around access to credit. And the fourth thing is to take this from the level of federal policy and really have state and local agencies focus on homeownership, focus on the local codes, zoning, and other issues that can be helpful to ensuring that access to credit in local markets and investment in communities in local markets is robust. I want to just mention quickly the Federal Housing Administration, uh, which is run by HUD, and the need for us to strengthen that agency. That agency supports almost 50% of all minority lending and access to credit in this country. So strengthening and making the proper investments and appropriations for that agency are critical to ensuring stability for the future. And as we look to the next 50 years, why should we continue to focus on this issue of the black home ownership gap. Home ownership is a solid path to wealth building. And there's no doubt about this. There's no, all the evidence supports this. It's been true uh, all along. It has benefited white families consistently and without fail in America for generations. 
we can't be complacent or inconsistent or lax about you know now about how we how we move forward and how we think about bridging the gap. So ignoring this really creates more disenfranchisement, division, unrest for society as a whole. And I think it's really important that everyone sort of own and, 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 and understand that bringing everyone forward and upward uh, is helpful to the nation. As always, let's close with some key takeaways. One. The gap between black and white home ownership is larger today than it was in the 1960s, before the passage of the Fair Housing Act. Roughly 42% of black households own homes today, compared with 72% of white households. Two, black people were disproportionately affected by the mortgage crisis. They were more likely to have riskier, high-priced loans and more likely to experience foreclosure when the housing bubble burst. And three, to close the black homeownership gap, policymakers need to prioritize homeownership, actively combat housing discrimination, and push lenders to expand access to credit. So that's our show. Thanks to Elena McCargo for offering her insight on this complicated topic. You can find her research on our website, www.urban.org. And don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And before we close, we have some sad news to report. Ramona Brandt, who was featured in our first episode about long prison terms, passed away on February 25th. Ramona had been sentenced to life without parole for a first-time nonviolent drug offense and was granted clemency by President Obama in December 2015. We are grateful to her for sharing her story with us and our thoughts go out to her family. Thanks to Vicki Gann, who produced and edited this episode, and Yafon Powers for all her help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner, signing off. <laughs>